Isaiah chapter 55, it has everything to do with Exodus and where we've been. Um, and I want to tell you why it does. Okay, so if you got a white or a blue Bible that we handed you, it's going to be page 357. That's Isaiah 55. We will be there in a, in a minute. We've been working our way through the book of Exodus. Exodus is the story of God producing a people. Okay, and so we've been on our way, journeying through. We've watched as God heard his people's cry. He saw their affliction. He saw their struggle. He created a, a process of deliverance for them. He brought them out of slavery. He led them through the desert. He brought them across the Red Sea. He destroyed their enemies. He brought them to himself at Mount Sinai. He brought them up the mountain. They didn't want to go up the mountain. We talked about that. Then he gave them a covenant to be their God. They would be his people. They entered into this covenant with these relational ideals, kind of like the terms of the covenant, the marriage vows, if you will, the Ten Commandments, and then another 42 commandments after Anyway, he's done all of this, okay? And then Moses goes up the mountain for the seventh time, and God gives him the plans for this tent-like structure called the tabernacle, which God says is going to be a sanctuary, which we talked about is the place on earth where God's presence dwells, okay? So all of this has been happening. We've been watching it happen. And kind of the summary of what we've been talking about, about this tabernacle, or this sometimes it's called the tent of meeting, uh, is in Exodus chapter 20. And I'll put it on the screen so you don't have to actually turn to it. But here's the kind of summary of the tabernacle and its purpose. It's very clear, actually, uh, from the Lord's perspective. It says, at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet with you. Now, this is God speaking, okay? Where I will meet with you to speak to you there. So God is dwelling with his people by meeting with them and speaking to them. Verse 43, there I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. Verse 45, Here's the big part. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. So this whole thing, this tabernacle, this tent, okay, is for the purpose of God dwelling among his people, which we just read, where he will meet with his people in, for the purpose of speaking to his people. Does everybody understand that? Okay, now if we follow that forward historically, the tabernacle turned into the temple, which was basically like a permanent version of the tabernacle. And then Jesus said, I am that temple that will be destroyed and rebuilt in three days. And then Jesus left and said, you are now the temple. You are the place where God dwells on the earth. Okay, so keep that in the back of your mind. But the purpose of the tabernacle, back to Exodus, is that God would dwell among his people. And there've been, we've spent several weeks now connecting the lines biblically between this tabernacle and the purposes, the functions of how it's actually supposed to work in people's lives. Because one of the hard things about reading through the Old Testament is you kind of have to figure out like what it means for us today, right? Like, okay, there was a tent 2,500 years ago in the desert where God met with and spoke to his people, what am I supposed to do with that, right? I, I don't have any tents in my backyard with like stands and posts and gold lampstands and things like that. So what does it mean for us? Well, there's been lots of things that translate, okay? We've talked about this tabernacle. At, it's a place of obedience, 
okay? The, the terms of the covenant have been established there. We talked about it being a place of sacrifice as blood was shed for their atonement in this place. This was a place of surrender as people submitted themselves to live as the people of God. And we read how every person was given the ability to conduct this structure a couple weeks ago and then Ben tied that last week to us functioning in the house of God and all of us being given a part to play. All, many parts, one body, right? And then two weeks ago, we read a story from the life of Jesus where Jesus called what should be happening in this place at the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, the place where God meets with and people hear from God. Jesus called that prayer. You remember that story a couple weeks ago? I, I, the quick recap of it is during Jesus' life, he walks into the temple, the place where God is supposed to be doing the things we just read about. And he said, he starts turning over tables. He said, my father's house is supposed to be a house of prayer. So here's the conclusion we came to. In this place, when God dwells with and meets with his people and speaks to them, there is a word for this thing that involves the obedience and the sacrifice and the surrender and the hearing from God. And Jesus calls it prayer. Okay, And this is the defining activity of the people of God. This is not like, hey, some side thing that we do every once in a while. It's like we put it on the calendar quarterly or something. This is the defining activity of the people of God, that God dwells among them, speaks to them, and that they hear from them. This is what it means to be the people of God. It's not tertiary. It is primary. Okay, The way the world knows that God dwells among his people is prayer. That's it. It's prayer. The way, when we're back in Exodus, like reading the building of the tabernacle, they'll turn into the temple. The purpose of all of this is prayer. So the, the question that we sometimes ask is, what does it look like? What do we take from this Old Testament? What's about this tent in the wilderness 2,500 years ago? What can I help? What, what does that mean for me? It starts with prayer. Now, there's probably a big letdown if the whole of your definition of prayer is just asking God for stuff. If, if your whole idea of prayer is the thing you say for 45 seconds before you eat, sometimes, probably all of you did it on Thanksgiving. It's like, well, I guess we should, right? Thanks, God, for our food. And then, like, before I go to bed, I ask God for a few little things, like that I would sleep good and the traveling mercies, whatever those are. And, you know, if that's your entire definition of prayer, then why would we need to build a whole building for that? What do we need a tent for that? What do we need a location on the earth to ask God for stuff? Can I just ask God for stuff on my own? Well, because that's not the entirety of what Jesus meant when he said, my father's house is a house of prayer. And, and, and we hear this when Jesus said, this is supposed to be a house of prayer because his exact words were, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer. Okay, so if you're a good Jewish boy or girl and you're sitting there in the temple and you're doing your thing and Jesus busts in and starts chucking tables around, he says, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer. Immediately, you think that's in the scriptures. Like it's not written on a billboard somewhere. It's written in the word of God. So Jesus is pointing the people to the function of the temple, which was the same function as the tabernacle, to this scripture where it is written, God is speaking from himself. He says, my house shall be called a house of prayer. So if you're sitting there and you're paying attention, 
And you're just not like, what was that about? If you're like, what did he say? And why did he say it? And why, did, why would he point us back to this scripture that we've all heard before? So if you didn't know, that was a quote from Isaiah chapter 55, which is where we're going to read today. It's actually a quote from Isaiah chapter 56, but the whole passage begins in Isaiah 55. And we're going to read the passage that Jesus pointed us to. And as we read it, we are going to find out in God's own words, like this is God's own description of what is happening in his house when he meets with and speaks to his people, which I, I think that might be hard for some of you to describe or articulate sometimes. And I'm saying as Christians, sometimes it's hard for us. What does it mean to meet with God? You're like, well, like what is it? How do you I know if God spoke to me? Uh, well, you have a feeling. Well, there's lots of things in the world that gives feeling. How do you know if it wasn't just some bad cranberry sauce from two days ago, right? Like, how are we knowing what is actually happening here? Is God meeting with and speaking to and dwelling among his people? Well, Isaiah 55 is going to give us very clearly in God's own words what it looks like when he meets with and speaks to his people. Okay, so finally now, Isaiah chapter 55 Quick background before we read it. This is written by the prophet Isaiah as a message from God. So in this passage, God is inviting his people to his house where he dwells, where he meets with his people, just like we read in Exodus, should be having it at the tabernacle. So we're going to spend the rest of our time here today. And I want to keep this idea in the back of your mind that Exodus and the tabernacle and the tent of meeting is the place where all of this is happening. Here we go. Isaiah 55, start in verse 1. Come. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and bread without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. Okay, so we start and we recognize that God is speaking here first person. He's speaking to his people and he starts by calling them and pointing out that something in their life is missing. Do you see that? There's a need here that is not being filled. There's a thirst that is yet unquenched. And God says, if you're thirsty, if you have no money, if you recognize the lack, if you have nothing of value, come and I will meet that need freely without price. You can't put a number on it. You cannot pay me to fill this need and quench this thirst. I will do it for free. And God points out now, as we continue through the passage, he's going to point out a contrast. There's a contrast between what I just told you about God recognizing your thirst and meeting it for free and what, is, what most people are trying to do right now, what most people are currently doing. So on one side, we have God filling this need, satisfying this thirst without cost. And on the other side, which is what most people are currently doing, which is paying a huge cost and working for things that do not sustain, do not satisfy, and continue to leave you thirsty. Okay? It's like God is saying, you're trying to satisfy your thirst, but you're paying a huge price and spending your effort and working towards something that is not life-giving 
and does not satisfy. Look at verse two. Why do you spend your money on that which is not bread? Why do you spend things that are valuable on things that don't satisfy you, that don't meet the need that's inside you? Why do you labor for that which does not satisfy at the end of verse two? Okay, he's saying, you're working for something, and it's not helping, is it? It's not fulfilling the thirst. It's not taken away. Now, just to be clear, God is speaking to all of mankind right here. Okay, it's not like this applies to some of us, and for some of us, this is not what it's like to meet with God and hear from God. This is true for everybody. Okay, God doesn't say, hey, Christians, people of God, you don't need to listen to this. This is for everybody else. This is for everybody. Sometimes we act like, as church people, like, oh, when it says, like, turn away and repent and, like, come to Jesus, like, that's for the people out there, the bad people. We already got this message. We get it. God doesn't seem to do that, right? God doesn't seem to think that. God seems to think that everybody needs to come to him. Everybody is laboring for that which does not satisfy. Everybody is spending the value of their lives on things that do not satisfy. Everybody thirsts. Everybody has a tendency to fill it themselves. Everybody is prone to spend their lives working for things that do not satisfy and make your soul alive like he finishes verse 3. We all have this within us. We all, if left to ourselves, would pay the incredibly high price of our entire lives for things that do not satisfy. Do you know that about yourself? Sometimes we treat Christianity and walking with God like it's a driver's license test. Like you just do the big hard thing at the beginning and then you just do whatever makes sense to you for the rest of your life. Right? That's how I took my driver's license test. If you still know like how far before a left turn you need to turn on your blinker, good for you. I have no idea. I forgot all those numbers immediately after I took the test. Right? I'm just like, uh, I'm good. I'm just going to do what makes sense to me now. And people treat Christianity that way. We talk about repentance. We talk about coming to God. We talk about surrender. And then after you do that, you're like, okay, now I'm just going to make it make sense to me. And, and Jesus is pointing back to a scripture here in the place of God where he says, God seems to be telling all people that they have a tendency to spend their lives on things that will leave them thirsty, on things that will not satisfy them. And it's as true for the person who's been a Christian for 50 years as it is for the person who has never yet decided to walk with God. God calls out to all of us, knowing that the temptation to fill our thirst with things that are not him will never go away as long as we are alive on this earth. I think sometimes we read these passages as if God is talking to other people. You know, the, 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 the people who haven't decided to listen to God yet. You know, there's a story in the Bible about a king named Solomon. And Solomon started off about as good as you could possibly start. He built the temple, the first one. The Spirit of God came down upon him. He went before God and says, God, I want wisdom to lead your people. And God was so impressed with that heart. He said, Solomon, I'm going to give you fame and power and riches because you were humble enough to ask for wise heart to lead my people. You're such a blessing, Solomon. You're doing a good job. And you know what Solomon spent the last several decades of his life doing? Pursuing things that do not satisfy. 
So there's no way that we can go, he's not talking to us here. <laughs> he's not talking to us. We're, there's, I've been a pastor for a little bit now. Not very long. Like, I'm not that old. Well, I'm old. But uh, like a couple decades in, I can tell you that Christians are as guilty as anybody of spending their lives on things that do not satisfy. So what does God call us to do when we meet with him? Well, the first thing he says, as we read in verse 1, is come to me. The second thing he calls us to is look at verse 2. Listen diligently. Do you see where it says that? Does that remind you of Exodus 29? When he said, I will meet with my people and speak to them. It sounds sounds like exactly the same thing, right? So the two things that should be happening, first and foremost, in this house of prayer, the house of God, are coming to God and listening to God. And he repeats himself in this poetic type of way, but he says, listen diligently, incline your ear, which is the same thing. It's just a poetic way to say it. He says, delight yourself in, right? When you delight in something, what do you do? You pay attention to it. You listen. That's the same idea, right? You give it attention. And finally, he says, hear, which is the same thing as listen. Okay, those are all the exact same thing. Expect God to speak to you. Come to God and expect him to speak to you. Does that make sense? Like that's what God's calling his people to do. And why do we do these things? What is the outcome? Why do we come to God? Why do we expect him to speak to us? Why do we incline our ear and delight in him and hear what he has to say? Look at the end of verse 3. That your soul may live. See, the problem with what people are currently doing and what the temptation for all of us is to do is to distract ourselves and fill our lives with things that do not lead to our souls being alive. We, we got a lot of activity. None of it leads to our souls being alive. So the contrast is on one side, we have thirst, spending, laboring for that which does not satisfy. On the other side, we have a freely given, delighting in God, listening to God, coming to God. And at the end of it, our souls become alive. Here's the short version of it. He's calling out to people who are going through their lives in such a way that their souls are not alive. He's saying, you're living in such a way that doesn't bring life. It's just distraction. People live lives that bring death to their souls, and God calls people to him that those people might experience life in their souls. That's what should be happening when people meet with God. God is calling them to life. He's calling them to listen that they might live. And he knows that they're prone to pursue living in such a way that does not bring life. It's actually a distraction from what is true life. It's a distraction from the thirst that you live with. There's two things you could do when you're thirsty, right? You could go find something to drink or you could distract yourself. Uh, I'm busy, right? And that's usually how you got thirsty in the first place, right? You weren't paying attention. You were doing something else. Oh, man. And then if something, and that's how people live. I get it. That's a lot, right? But we're only a couple of verses in. We got to keep it moving. Look at verse six. He says this, seek the Lord while he may be found. Remember, this is all happening in the house of the Lord. That's where all this is taking place. Seek the Lord while he may be found. 
Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Okay, so verse 6 says, seek the Lord. Everybody see that in your Bible? Don't look at me, look at your Bible. You see where it says, seek the Lord? It doesn't say, go to church. Right? Anybody else have a different translation? It doesn't say, read your Bible. It doesn't say, sing worship songs. It says, seek the Lord. Okay, there is a heart posture of pursuit of God that happens here. It's it's not just talking about religious activity, guys. It's not just talking about making yourself busy with things that are appropriate. It's talking about doing things for the purpose of seeking the Lord for the purpose of pursuing God, for the purpose of hearing from God. Because here's what I know. It's very possible to go to church. It's very possible to read your Bible. It's very possible to sing church songs and be a good person without actually seeking the Lord. You can do all that stuff. I've seen it. I've even participated in it. And you have too. So we all know it's possible. I know that you know it's possible to do churchy things, to do Christian things without having the heart that's actually seeking the Lord, without actually listening to God. It's possible to do a lot of Christian things. It's possible to be a very good person and still be seeking your own agenda and your own plan and not be seeking the Lord at all. So God here gives us a picture of what seeking the Lord looks like, starting in verse 7. Look at this. He says, let the wicked forsake his way. Well, well, that's not talking to me, Jerry. That's talking to the wicked people. I'm not wicked. I mean, I don't, a few white lies here and there. I'm not wicked, right? Uh, God didn't ask. He told. He's like, is there any wicked people here? I have a message for you. He didn't do that. He said, you're all wicked. Right? If you were like, I wanted to come to church and have this guy tell me how bad I was. You're welcome. Okay? (laughs) God didn't ask. He told us. He's telling you that you are wicked. And what he's calling everybody to is repentance. There's no qualifiers here. He didn't start this message by saying, come to me, you who are not Christians, are not the people of God, who are not Jewish, who don't understand. He said, come to me, all you, and I know you thirst, and let all of you wicked forsake his way. He's not saying, there's some of you that need to forsake the way. The rest of you get in this line over here, you're better than everybody else. He didn't say that. All of you are wicked, and let all of you forsake his way. Let the wicked forsake his way. That's acknowledging that the way you are on is the wrong way. What do we call that? It's confession and repentance. That's all it is, right? 
Let the wicked acknowledge his way. That's confession and forsaking, acknowledging that you're on a way that's not the right way and forsaking that way, that's repentance, turning another way, right? That's all that is. Confession and repentance here are part of what it means to meet with God and hear from God in a house of prayer. That's not just asking God for stuff in the house of prayer. This is what it looks to meet with God. This is what it looks like to hear from God. This is what it looks like, in verse 6, to seek the Lord. Now, what happens when you confess and repent? What happens when someone comes to meet with God and is moved to specifically name where they have failed and intends to live a different life? Look at the end of verse 7. Compassion, you see that? And abundant pardon. So what God, Yahweh, is offering here is a life that is truly life, that your soul may live, right? If you come to him, listen, confess, and repent, he says he will freely give compassion and abundant pardon. Okay? Now, I do want to point this out real quick. The wicked forsaking his way, the unrighteous his thoughts is pretty specific, right? That's pretty specific. Your ways and your thoughts are specific things about the way you live your life, okay? Here's what happens. Lots of times we feel bad because we know we should be doing better. Well, I went to church and I felt bad because I know I should probably be doing better. And some people equate feeling bad for meeting with God, right? Like, oh, I felt bad when I went to church, so I met with God. Uh, I didn't read that in here. Actually, I didn't read that anywhere, right? God's like, you should feel bad, and that means we met. And, and some of you have been brought up to real, think that, right? Like, the worse I felt, the more I felt like I met with God. Like, uh, it's not in the Bible. You, well, our culture probably just made that up, okay? So just feeling bad for stuff is not meeting with God, okay? Satan is called the accuser of the brethren, guys. He can make you feel bad about stuff. In fact, there's lots of things that can make you feel bad about your life that have nothing to do with God, okay? Feeling bad is not of the fruit of the Spirit. I've read the list a lot of the times. It's not in there. It's like, why am I feeling bad? Like, just like coming to church and be like, I know I should try harder and do better. God's not calling you to that. He's not. What is part of meeting with God is not just feeling bad about general stuff, but forsaking or turning away from a specific way of living or action in your life or thought in your mind and acknowledge in acknowledging the wickedness, turning away from that specific thing and turning to God. And when you turn to God, you will find him not angry and upset and like arms crossed, like it's about time. I've been telling you to stop doing that forever. I've been telling you to try harder. That's not what you find. Look at the verse, what you find. You find compassion and abundant pardon. That's what it means to meet with God. Now, this is really interesting. How many of you have heard this next part? For my ways, or for my thoughts are not your thoughts, and neither are my ways your ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours, and thoughts your thoughts. You heard that verse before? Three of you. Okay. The rest of you? Nobody else has heard that, really? Okay, you're just shy today. I think you've heard that before, probably. We've heard that, and usually what happens is that something bad happens that you're kind of not comfortable with, 
right? And you're like, oh, this crazy thing happened, and I don't know what's going on. And then a well-meaning Christian brother or sister will say, well, the Bible says my ways are not your ways, and my thoughts are not your high. His thoughts and ways are higher than ours. How many of you knew that that was in the context of confession and repentance? So that person who quoted that to you, they're completely right, and I understand why they're doing it, and that's fine, right? I'm not trying to, like, make you feel bad about quoting that verse sometime to a friend who had a hard time. You shouldn't feel bad about that. It's absolutely true that God is doing things above and beyond what makes sense to us in the moment. But that's not the context of the verse. The context of the verse is that God is moving towards people who are confessing and repenting, calling thirsty people who are dying of their thirst, acknowledging their wickedness before him, and repenting of that, forsaking their way and their thoughts. And he says, then, okay, here's how I'll say it, actually. Remember when you're a kid, and there's like that legend that you find a genie in a lamp? Right? And you get the genie or the lamp and you rub the lamp and the genie comes out and the genie gives you what? Three wishes, right? And there's rules about it, but like everybody kind of daydreams. You probably play that, that uh, game in the car when you're like driving. You're like, if you had three wishes, what would they be? And you're always thinking of how much stuff you could get, right? Except for some of you are super holy and you're like, world peace, you're like, good for you. But the rest of us are like, I'd go for this car and this house. And right, we're like, how much could we get? Because we realize that there is abundant resources and power and ability at our disposal now with this genie. And we would get some stuff for us and maybe other people too. But mostly we're just thinking like, what could we get with all of those resources and power that the genie is offering us? It's almost like God rubbed a lamp. Don't call me a heretic yet. Wait, 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 wait till I finish, right? The genie came out. Genie's like, what can I give you, God? And God says, I want compassion and abundant pardon for the whole world. Now, now obviously, God doesn't need a genie in a lamp to have incredible power and incredible resources and incredible ability. But that's what he uses all of that power and ability and resources to accomplish. Like he has this unbelievable amount of resources and power and wisdom at his disposal. And what does he use all that power for? To show people compassion and abundantly pardon. That's the context of the verse. My ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. Yeah, you got some power, God. You got some ability. You got some wisdom. What are you going to use it all for? To show people compassion. To forgive their sin. That's the context of this verse. God is using all that he is capable of to show compassion and abundant pardon to those who are thirsty and who are laboring for that which is not satisfied if they just forsake their wicked way. The great news is God exists in a place where he doesn't need a genie. He possesses all this unlimited power and knowledge. But there's not one person who will come into the presence of God who will not come on the basis of abundant pardon. Like You're not going to get to heaven and there's going to be two lines. It's like the good people over here, the people who needed abundant pardon and compassion over here. You realize that? Like we're all in the same line. 
We all are coming to the house of God to meet with and hear from God on the basis of his compassion and his abundant pardon. Now, we've talked about this a bit over the past couple of weeks, but think of the picture of God you have in your mind as he relates to you. Is that the same as what we just talked about, or is it different? Think about the posture of God in your mind that you picture like, okay, God's standing in front of you. What is the look on his face? Lots of you think the look on his face is anger. He's a little impatient. He's like, man, I've been telling you to do this stuff, and it's taking you a really long time. You're still doing that? You're still screwing that up? You still aren't listening to me? I got 45 things I've done in your life to show you how good I am, and you haven't even, like, respond in one way. Lots of us think that that's how God interacts with us. He's just a little annoyed. I mean, he loves us like our dad does, but our dad's always kind of like, pick it up a little bit, huh? I know he loves me, but he's just kind of annoyed. That's, That's just not what we read in the Bible. The God that we read in the Bible is eager and excited to abundantly pardon and show compassion. He's just like, can I, can, I, can I show you mercy right now? Please, please, can I give you mercy? Can I, can I forgive all your sin? I just want to. I just want to forgive all. Like, the only way that you cannot receive this incredible love and kindness and mercy from God is if you turn your back on him. Like, no, I'm not interested. I'm not wicked. I don't need your help. That's the only way. Just the person that's like, yeah, I, you're right. I'm not doing it. He's like, forgiven. It's all forgiven. I love you so much. I'm so glad that you're here to meet with me and hear me. Not because he's weak. Not because he's trivial. Not because he doesn't understand, but because he in his nature is love. God is impatient. No, that's not what it says. God is annoyed. No, that's also not what it says. God is frustrated. No, God is love. The word of God describes a God who abundantly pardons. And we're in the Old Testament, guys. He's always been like this. Now, he is loving enough that he will call you out of sin. He will call you away from those things that are not life. If you do ask him, like, hey, Lord, I'm struggling here. He might say that relationship needs to go. That activity you're doing, that needs to stop. That sin, you need accountability for that. You need to confess that to other people and find accountability and walk in new life, right? He's never not going to say, that doesn't, just because God is love and he abundantly pardons and he has great compassion doesn't mean he won't ever say anything that is hard for you to hear. But it's always out of love. He might say, your life needs to change. I, I did just call you wicked but I did that because I care for you and I just can't wait to have grace and mercy on you. I'm not even halfway through my notes. Nope, I'm done. It just means next week. Here's the thing. Next week's the good part. Like this has been great. We haven't even got to the good part yet. So you can't not come next week. Like this is a manipulation tactic on my part of like, you have to come to church next week. It's just the Holy Spirit said, like, they need the rest of it later. So that's what we're going to do this morning. So worship team, we're going to come on up. I think that's plenty for us to spend some time singing over and praying through, right? That the posture of God towards us is compassion and abundant pardon. That he's calling all of us 
to confession and repentance. That he wants all of us in here to not be thirsty, to walk in a way that is truly life for our souls. Not distraction from life into things that is keeping us thirsty, not spending our life pursuing ourselves, but actually pursuing God. So we're going to spend 15 minutes. We'll be done at 11.15. And I just want you to spend this time reflecting on what the Word of God says about who He is and what He's calling you to.